Hi, I'm Anna Burt and I'm Sue's daughter. Hi, I'm Emily Benita. I'm Trudy's daughter. Though our mums are both dead, the fact doesn't change. We're both adapting to living our lives without our mums and know we are very much not the only ones. We have joined forces to create a podcast in the hope that we can provide what we feel we needed and still need in our grief. The mothership, the mother load. There's no getting around that mother means something big. There are so many different kinds of mother, biological, step, figure, and so many different kinds of grief when they're gone. We're here to do what we can in podcast form, welcoming guests so we can explore our experiences together, where they converge and where they vary, and, hopefully, understand a little more about the nuance and scope of The The Mother mother of All Losses. Well, Anna, but today it's okay, but I had that real just about to fall asleep, deep pain of it last night. And it was just an absolutely all right day, as all right as it can be in stay at home order lockdown. And it was just that real kind of even peace of mind. (laughs) And then it just kind of was there because it's always there um and I don't know about you but being aware of oh it's Mother's Day is kind of and and that's starting to gear up in terms of marketing yeah so it's like as soon as Valentine's Day is done the next horrific (laughs) holiday so yeah it was it was sore last night and I didn't expect it which I should in a way sort of (laughs) now um but yeah it's today it's it's okay as we return to our sea analogy it's it's calmer did you do things for Mother's Day with Trudy no we didn't really like I definitely get her a card but it wasn't ever like a a regular sort of observance for the two of us it was more kind of other stuff but I I guess it's just that really it's just knowing you can't do anything even if it's just a card and the constant reminders I'll tell you what though props to the body shop who um send me regular um emails which I never engage with but they did have a would you like to opt out of Mother's Day marketing emails and I think and I appreciate that because I understand that people need to sell things and marketing is a thing um and I thought that was pretty good of them and companies are wising up to that I'm so glad that they are and you remain my hero for replying to so many being like um (laughs) you should really think about this um well I've I wish I could say I haven't had tacos and cocktails and Oaxacas since they got sassy with me when I sent them an email, but I have. Because <laughs> I'm a basic okay. bitch. Oh, basic or classic, though? That's my argument, Anna Burt. <laughs> is it basic or is it just dependably really good every time? Well, the margarita was a classic. Oh, I love a marg. How is your grief, please? You know what? My grief's, my grief's mental this week because I've... So I don't know if you know, I'm like a really, really weird sleeper. Like I can't remember the last time I didn't just close my eyes and drift off and have a dreamless, calm sleep. Like I have the most mental, like epic, 
Oscar-worthy dreams (laughs) and really loads recently without fail in the last couple of weeks my mum pops up in them and sometimes like I know she's gonna die or sometimes she's just died and sometimes um and then sometimes she does die and then I wake up and I think oh it's okay it's already happened you know it's just so weird she just keeps cropping up in my dreams I think she's trying to tell me something in is she telling you off again because no, she's just spoke there. About. <laughs> she's just okay. existing. It's weird. It's just like a presence. We don't talk. I can't, you know, it's not like proper conversations, but she's just kind of there. And in a way, it's not horrible. Like no. it just it literally doesn't keep me up at night because I'm asleep. But mm. um, it's just weird how it comes up. And it is. It's nearly her birthday, and then obviously there's Mother's Day. So I wonder if that's it, or I just wonder if my. Bra- I think what my brain is doing is like processing the trauma of dealing with all her worldly possessions last year and then I'm I'm now that I kind of feel like my brain is in the place to deal with it and I think it slowly is oh god I mean of course and like you say you know it's not a bad thing to have a presence it's not an unpleasant thing but it can be an uncanny thing and about processing or going through all of her possessions my wonderful friend Oriana has a band because she's really cool and it's a really cool band name, Shelley Byron and the Poison Sleep. And a song that they released most recently um, is Oriana writing about going through all of her mum's things. Oh. And I mean, I know I'm biased, but she's also incredibly talented. And it's a really beautiful song. And oh. it's called Cargo Cult. And I'll put a link in the little uh, episode yeah, notes for us. But, but of course, how can it, like, I think any of that kind of uh, grief task it's not a simple tick off your to-do list there's so much feeling around it how can there not be it was a big job and I'm going to make a really smooth link now because it was a really (laughs) big job and I was going to celebrate doing this really big job by going to Spain to see one of my favourite people in the whole world, Laura Lockington, who we have on the show today. Um, And Laura is an absolute legend. Um, I love every inch of her. And as anyone listening will know, I didn't go to Spain and um, was very, very much gutted about it. And in the corner next to my desk here is a little box of presents that I wrapped and (laughs) wrapped ready for Laura. at Christmas and just haven't moved because it's too tragic. So Laura Lockington, welcome to the mother of all losses. Please, can you introduce yourself? Hi guys, nice to talk to you. Nice to hear your voice, Anna. Yeah, my name's Laura Lockington. I am an author and an Airbnb host and I live in Mallorca. And you were so missed at Christmas, Anna, I cannot tell you. So you are one of our favourite people and everyone here loves you. And I have got your presence <laughs> sitting, sitting, sitting in the corner of my room thinking, it'll be fine. She'll be here at some point. You know, it'll be happy Christmas in the middle of summer or something, whatever. Yeah. We will be on that beach before we, will. we know it. And we'll think, God, that was a mad year, wasn't it? We didn't yeah. Ages. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the, quir- the, the, quir- the first question we <laughs> ask our guests, Law, is yeah. how is your grief today? So I'd love, I'd love you to talk about your grief, um, introduce yeah. us to your mum. But also, I'm so interested, your lockdown has been particularly isolated. And I wonder if yeah. that had, a, had an impact on your grief. I think so, actually. I think, um, interestingly, you were talking about dreams, because when my mother 
first died, uh, it was some time ago now. I mean, the grief does never go away, obviously, it just doesn't. But it changes, it becomes different. Mm. Um, and the dreams I have about her now are quite joyful, actually, um, and, and always very funny. Um, I dreamt that uh, we were all in a ramshackle car driving to Cornwall uh, to go and stay with her. And it somehow seemed imperative that we cram in a massive pine tree in like a, a 2CV car and a drunk Irish poet. And it became a road trip from, from heaven, really. I mean, it was hilarious. And I knew that my mother would be pacing waiting for us and would have prepared a wonderful feast and you know would be pouring wine and and it was very very joyful and I woke up and I was so disappointed that it was the dream you know um and I think the grief does just stay with you I wear one of her rings I've never taken it off since she died and I kind of kiss it every day and I just miss her very much but it does change over time you know it becomes it, I think you can think of the happier things um, more easily. That's really hopeful to know because I'm uh, I never know how to phrase this I guess earlier on in my grief journey but also just fresher to uh, to the whole grief lark and I know Anna has spoken about this before but you know it is it takes a little bit more effort to tap into the joy and the happiness because that was definitely the overriding sense of my relationship with my mum and it feels Mm. kind of um it just feels inaccurate sometimes to only have this kind of sadness my mum also had a two cv I realised I just wanted Did to she? Pop oh, that that's in there. funny. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. And I think when, when my mother first died, the dreams were not joyful. And she was angry with me, some of the dreams. And that kind of puzzled me. Um, and I think I was angry with myself and angry that she died and, you know, angry at the whole shit time of it. Um, mm. But yes, it, it, I think distance, um, you know, chronological distance does make it easier to remember the joyful the joyful and the happy times yeah so Laura Mm. please could you tell us how did your mum live speaking of you know joyful times and if you could share her name with us as well yes her name was Joan um Joan Deering she was extremely funny a little bit eccentric for sure Mm. very funny very loving she wrote pantomimes um, I know it's bizarre, isn't it? So at her funeral, the uh, the coffin bearers all dressed up. So we had Aladdin and Mother Goose and Widow Twanky, and you know, I mean, it was bizarre. It was a really bizarre funeral. Um, she was very funny and slightly um, what's the word for it? She was, if anything, she was overprotective of me, for sure but she so desperately wanted me to be happy that it feels wrong to be sad about her, if you know what I mean. Um, Mm. She lived in Cornwall. Um, uh, She moved there when I was about 20, I think. Um, And other other than that, we lived in in London. So Cornwall became a second home for me. Um, 
And she was just fun. She was one of those people that if something funny went on in the room, she was the first one you wanted to catch her glance. You know, you, you wanted her to give you the nudge and the, and the knowing nod and the wink. Very funny, very practical woman. Uh, she made her own, she, well, she could do everything really. Um, you know, sew, embroider, knit, crochet. She made her own bee hutch, what have you called hive um she was a fantastic cook um and she she always had these sort of little things that she told you that have stayed with me all my life and and I cannot get rid of them so it was always things like every front door should be painted cardinal red <laughs> and of course of course the first time I bought a house I thought I'm not going to paint my front door red and of course I did um, you know, uh, never trust a man who wears a hat whilst driving. I mean, I, I, I have no idea why, you know, absolutely haven't got a clue. Always give people help before they have to ask for it, which, mm. which is a really nice, nice thing. And I have to say, Anna does that. And I'm very proud of her for doing that. Um, always make your bed, never turn down a glass of champagne, uh, <laughs> And always cook uh, rhubarb with some orange peel in it. I mean, these things are just ingrained in me and I can't not to do them. You know, so she lives on in me through that. And, you know, I make pastry like she made pastry and I cook like she does. So all of those things, her life was very full and very adventurous I remember once in, in the interminable summer holidays when you were a kid, um, and I was an only child. So it was quite, not lonely, but, but it wasn't, you know, full of friends, really, I suppose. And she said to me once, oh, darling, these summer holidays are going on. I know. Let's go to Paris. And I was like, oh, really? And she said, yes, get in the car. And we drove to Paris. Now, my mother was driving before you had to take a test. Right. So it, she was a good, I mean, she loved driving, but it was a little bit dangerous. You know? <laughs> and I remember driving and there's this massive roundabout in Paris, basically around the Arc de Triomphe. And she couldn't get off the roundabout. And she was sick and I was sick because we were just going round and round and round and round and I mean, forever. It felt like. Um, so it was that kind of impetuous, um, adventurous, everyone has to be happy, you know? So yeah, she was fabulous. Absolutely I fabulous. I love the way you talk about Joan Laura. And, <laughs> and I can really attest to, I love the way that she just, her stories just seep into everyday conversation. Yeah. And also the way that you cook. And I'm about to ask you to tell us a story about your mum. And you have so many wonderful ones. So I oh, want to know. But also the relationship between your mum and your writing and cooking yeah. and you is so Yeah. Cool. Well, you see, this is the funny thing. She had this very large house in Cornwall, which she used to do B&B in. But she used to have this uh, idea that she always wanted to have these very large, glamorous parties. And she ordered in this huge amount of seafood, which sounds terribly, I mean, she, she was never wealthy, but, but, you know, entertaining was a priority, really. Mm -hmm. 
And she ordered in, you know, crabs and lobster and prawns and some oysters. And she'd invited everyone from, you know, the artists in Penzance to the fishermen in Padstow to the local vicar who she loathed. <laughs> I mean, why she invited him, I don't know. But and, and she told everyone absolutely strictly at seven o'clock. And at 6.30, she wandered into the kitchen where I was, I think, trying to shuck oysters quite badly. And she said, you know what? I can't bear the idea of this. Uh, why, why did I invite? I must be mad. It's going to be ghastly. They're bores, all of them. Right, right. Turn the lights off and lie on the floor. So we had to turn the lights off and pretend we weren't in and lie on the floor because people could actually see through the windows. And we lay there for about an hour and a half. And she would occasionally crawl to the kitchen table and reach a hand up and, and sort of pluck a handful of prawns so we could nibble on something under the table. Um, and we had a bottle of champagne under there. And of course that soon disappeared. And I was dispensed to crawl along the kitchen floor to the fridge to get another one. So that my memories of her and food are very intertwined, you know, and this idea that she she loved the idea of it, but then suddenly the reality was like, they're all going to be ghastly. Let's not do it. Let's just pretend we're not here. So, you know, it, it's very, very typical of her. And she would always say there's always room for one more person at the table. So I would bring, you know, and as a teenager, you don't even think about catering or anything I'd casually bring you know five or six people home and she'd look at the two lamb chops that she planned for dinner for her and me you know and say oh well it's risotto you know and it, it wasn't a problem so food is a, a big part of her and I I certainly write about her and food and my relationship with food comes from her I'm sure you know, I like feeding people. I don't actually lie on the floor when people come <laughs> around and pretend I'm not in. Um, but I do like entertaining. I do like, you know, elbows on table and a glass of wine and good food. I think, yeah, that's a good way of telling people you love them. And your mum lot became very good friends with your husband. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit annoying, actually, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, all my ex-boyfriends and ex-husbands um, were terribly fond of her. I mean, absolutely adored her. Um, and I had a very acrimonious second divorce um, and found out years later, I have to say, um, that my second husband went to Cornwall picked my mother up and they went on a holiday together oh my god I know I was I, I was I was gobsmacked at this I mean that that really kind of threw me but everyone loved her you know yeah I'm still not very happy about that actually which is I, probably a bit childish really if you think about it but yeah at the time it didn't sit well with me no I no. think you're allowed to be a child when it I comes think you to your are. parent, you know. Yeah, I think you are too. Especially if your second ex-husband goes on holiday with them, you know? Yeah. 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 What other stories, Laura, come up um, with your mum? Gosh. Oh, I just want to listen to them all day. <laughs> well, I do remember coming home from school. I think I was probably about nine, I suppose, possibly ten. And um, my mother was in the garden. And we had a very big apple tree and pear tree, and they were covered in coat hangers. <laughs> and all the clothes 
from my wardrobe, her wardrobe, my father's wardrobe, were on the floor. And I said, what, what, what's going on? Why have you? And she said, well, do you know, I was thinking about this. And I thought, God, imagine being a coat hanger. You're just stuck inside a dark wardrobe year after year after year. It's a lovely day. I thought I'd give them a day out. <laughs> That's great. You know what I mean? And you're like, mm, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So things like that were quite sort of normal in our house, really. Um, she, she was a little eccentric. And she used to have these wonderful birthday parties for me where she'd do an incredibly elaborate cake and in amongst the cake in the icing there would be a rude word (gasps) and when you're a child you know I'm talking about you know I suppose six seven eight something like that and it would be fart or knickers or bum or you know something like that and you had to look really closely to find it. <laughs> and my friends were just, you know, practically wetting them. So because when you're a kid, a rude word is so funny, isn't it? You know. So yeah, she was she was a real um, a real character for sure. And I used to love her stories. She used to. Oh my god. Oh, it's all coming back. She came to give a talk <laughs> at my school called "The Meanderings of a Memsab." And it was about her first marriage to the captain in India. And she spoke about soldier ants going through the the outside dining table and sawing the table in half and how they had to go up the hills in the rainy season. And a boy had to be blindfolded and pour water through a tin can that got holes in it so she could have a shower. Um, And it wasn't until I was about 16 that I realised she'd never been married before. She'd never gone to India. Um, and it was complete fabrication. And she would talk about rogue elephants. And, and I remember saying to her, how, t- how did, how did the, your first husband, how did the captain die? And she said to me, oh, darling, that's so kind of you to ask that, but we really don't talk about it. He took to pig sticking in quite the wrong way. <laughs> and I was, you know, hysterical. I mean, so she, this fantasy... It was a laugh. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't she was lying. She wanted to entertain. So the talk at the school, which was the meanderings of a memsab, went down brilliantly. You know, I mean, everyone believed her. Everyone thought it was fabulous. Um, but I, of course, and then many years later, I realised she'd never been to India. She'd never been married before. Um, and it was rather lovely, you know? I mean, just what? a raconteur and imagination yeah. I, I, I feel brighter I feel like <laughs> just listening yeah to, to your stories about Joan and I can just picture her like as the hostess with the mostest yes. in terms of like being so generous not only yes. with champagne and prawns but also like you you would never forget going to that party no. where you had to lie down under the table because everyone it, was actually gusty it, like. exactly I mean it was very funny and I I remember writing in one of my first books about this mad party in Cornwall and I realized as I was writing it I was just talking about one of my mum's parties 
Mm. You know, it was, it came so easily because I just remembered all of it. And there would be farmers in Wellington boots and there would be a bishop and there would be an artist who was always drunk and lying in the bath. And, you know, it, 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 and people would get snowed in and they'd have to stay for two nights and people with bodies sleeping everywhere. I mean, it was fabulous. She was fabulous. Yeah. She absolutely yeah. is. And two yes. things very quickly for the record. I'd also yeah. like to just say that like knickers and bum and fart are for me, <laughs> whatever they kind age of are, you are, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, they're hilarious. Yeah. And number two, Laura, I don't think you're the only progeny of a pantomime writer. So Anna, correct oh, really? me. But did Sue not write pantomimes? She did. So I found a load. I don't know if I told you this lot. Because no. I you. Um, and normally we discuss it over a cold white yeah. and brawn. But exactly. <laughs> um, so I was, when I was sorting out her stuff, I found all these books. Well, I mean, the attic was full of boxes. Yeah. But when my mum, she lived in Sri Lanka when she was in her mm-hmm. early 20s and she taught. Um, she taught English there and she started writing pantomimes for them oh, how and funny. I found all these scripts for oh my gosh like Dick Whittington and Aladdin yeah. and Cinderella yeah. and to be honest I didn't go through and read them all but I did keep some of them so I will one day but what yeah. a funny thing to have found isn't it just and the extraordinary thing I don't know if your your mother wrote pantomime in rhyme but my mother wrote in rhyme but she she could speak in rhyming couplets as easily as you and I are talking now. I think it's just a knack. It's like mirror writing. Do you know what I mean? It's just like Mm. a knack that you've got. But I was listening to you guys earlier and I was listening and thinking about Mother's Day. And I remember very clearly when I was quite young, my mother said, now we don't want any nonsense with this Mother's Day. It's an Americanization. We're not buying into it. Don't ever do anything. So Mother's Day doesn't tug at my heart as much as it does, I think, for other people, because it wasn't a big... And actually, you know what? It wasn't a big thing when I was growing up. Yeah. You, had, you had Mothering Sunday, which was a church thing, if you went to church. But Mother's Day really wasn't this commercial thing that it is now. So, yeah. That get you, you know, like her birthday, or yeah, birthday, Christmas, yeah, like yeah, changed over the years. How long ago was it that Joan died? 20 years ago. Wow. Um, and I, rem- I, the one thing I do remember so clearly was that when I moved to Mallorca, I had my mother's ashes, and I thought to myself, I am not bringing them with me to Mallorca. This is just silly, really. And I got up one morning and uh, walked along Brighton Beach and it was very early and it was so calm and so flat. It was like a mill pond sea, you know. And I walked down to the sea and took the top of the casket and put the ashes into the water. And as I did it, this freak wave (laughs) came out of nowhere And I got absolutely soaked. I mean, just drenched. And I had a vision of my mother just laughing. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I had to squelch home. You know, my jeans were soaking, my shoes were wet, everything was wet. And I I do remember as well going through her stuff. And I can remember thinking, I'm not sure that I want to keep all of this. And I think I was a bit ruthless. I think I was probably too ruthless. 
um, because I did get rid of practically everything. Because I just thought, I, I just don't want to be encumbered with all this stuff, yeah. you know? Because I think that can be overwhelming, really. I have friends who have kept everything. Oh, and it's not, I don't know. But, I mean, obviously, I've kept quite a few things, but, but not everything. It's too much. It's just, sometimes you just have to let things go. I think. Can you talk, Laura, what you did with her with her rings? Yes. So, yeah, this was, I think this was probably the lowest point. It was about three months after my mother died and I was burgled. Oh, and no. yeah, and they took all of my mother's jewellery. Oh, um, no. I know, apart from four little Victorian rings. And I took the four rings into a jeweler's in Brighton and had them made into one ring. And I never take that ring off. Mm. So that, for me, I think that was just about, you know, when you think the worst thing in my life has happened, my mum's dead. The, the, the worst thing in your life has happened. So I can survive anything now because the worst has happened. Yeah. And then you get burgled. And it was like, mm, yeah, I didn't realize I could get lower than this, you know. So that was really awful for me. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, a lot of people talk about regrets, you know, the, the things you regret about your mother, um, the things you might not have said to her or the things you did say to her, you know. Mm. Um, and I, I do remember, but but then, you know, she was going through the menopause. I was a teenager. It was hormone central in our house. I mean, I used to have, I was horrible to her and I was a horrible teenager. So I regret that because it hurt both of us. And it took years really for, for us to kind of become not best friends because she was always my mother and I was her daughter, but to become the people that we used to be, you know, that took some time. Yeah. Well, obviously being burgled is not going to help you in no. your grief but Laura what what did help with your grief and you know oh God, I just I'm sorry I, I've got like such a dark pain in my in my chest mm. feeling of all the loss of that jewelry and yeah what 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 else didn't help but I mean you know more in terms yeah. of like unhelpful things people said because yeah, yeah the I loss know. of someone it's as tricky, fabulous as Joan yeah. yeah well I tell you what did help which sounds I don't know if it sounds odd or not, but when the, the night she died, uh, she died uh, in hospital whilst having um, surgery, mm. um, which was horrible for us, but probably fantastic for her, really. You know, under anaesthetic, no pain. Mm. Did, you, you know what I mean? Did, yeah. Fully expected to come out of surgery the following day. Um, and I have to say, she was vile when she was ill. I mean, she had she had a common cold. My God, you know, you were running around squeezing fresh orange juice and polishing grapes and changing bed linen and spraying eau de cologne. And I mean, you know, so she would have been an awful, awful um, sickly person. But the night she died, I had this sort of, not vision is too strong a word, but an image in my head. Um, and I described this image to a friend of mine who's an artist and he drew it for me and I have it framed in my bedroom and I look at that image and think that's what got me through that's what got me through 
her death really and the horrible days afterwards and you know the funeral and the uh, and people saying what which is you know a, uh, it's a nice thing to say I'm so sorry for your loss but it's a cliche and you don't want to hear it and you don't really want to do you don't want to be alone but you don't want to be with people you don't know what you want to do um, but the image certainly helped me yes and it was of a bare winter tree you know it's a black and white charcoal you know tree against a, a night sky and this man standing underneath a tree and he's holding something quite precious in his hands but you don't really know what it is um anyhow I described it to my friend and he he drew it for me and that could have kept me going really that image I think but the grief doesn't go away but it does change it really 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 does change it stops being heart-stoppingly appalling and it becomes manageable and then it becomes something that you bring out now and again you know yeah, I would agree, actually. And I remember, Laura, in the past, we've had conversations at particularly difficult times, haven't we? When I Yeah. Because I met you just after my mum had died. Absolutely, yeah. And just saying, I cannot imagine just, like, not being broke, not being yeah. depressed, and yeah. just being content. Like, and I, it was unfathomable. Yeah. But well, it doesn't seem possible, does it? Mm. No. And also, there was a bit of me that thought... Human beings aren't allowed to feel like this, are they? Do you know what I mean? Like, it feels like there should somehow be a, be a sort of retreat that you go to where people understand what you're going through and you stay there. The government pays you to go there and you sort of stay there until you can face the real world again, you know? That's such a good... You know what? There's, there's money in that law. <laughs> the Lemon Tree House of Death. I think I'm going to call my house now. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it, and also that thing as well about people wearing mourning, you know, people wearing an armband. You knew then that someone had close to them had died. Mm -hmm. um, and you, and, and I think there's something about that. You, I felt like I was wearing a badge going, don't come near me. The worst thing has happened to me in my life. And you will never understand how I'm feeling. And I think that black armband probably helped, I would think, mm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, Laura, do you remember, particularly, because you've got such wonderful friends that you've had for such a long time. Do you remember people doing particularly great things that have really stuck with you? Do you know, I'm sure they probably did. But I, I was not in a place to... to remember it or it could touch me or I could relate to it or I do remember um I think a couple of days after her funeral in Cornwall uh, one of her friends um I went around there for dinner and she was particularly kind and very charming and but I suddenly had this overwhelming desire just to get out of there you know and I think it's that awful feeling of you're desperate to be with people, but desperate to be alone. And then when you are alone, you're desperate to be with people. So nothing really worked, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Just like complete, just like that fight or flight thing. The whole yeah. Time. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because you're just so uncomfortable in yourself. Yeah. And, and like, and, and be, like uncomfortable is not quite right. Distressed. Mm. And like nothing is quite going to hit that because if you're alone, then you're sort of yeah. focusing on it. If you're with people, it's still kind of, you're having to be with people. Yeah. Even if it is people who are really close. Yeah, I remember that too. And the only person you want is your mum. Yeah. yeah. And also I think we are all social, socially aware that you don't want to be the person at the table who is really miserable or yeah. bursts into tears at inappropriate times or you know you, you don't want to be the Debbie Downer mm-hmm. you know and it's not that anyone is expecting anything of you but I think we expect things of ourselves yeah. and I think it's really difficult to say you know what guys it's really nice being with you but but I can't I just can't yeah. you know because then they don't know what to say nobody really knows what to do it's awkward. you know it's just awkward yeah and I tell oh god I tell you what I couldn't bear oh you know those people that over hug <laughs> you know they hug they hug they hold you too long and it goes on and on and on and you kind of pat their back and try and move away and they just hold on a bit tighter I can't bear that I can't bear it. So if I remember back, that. Yeah. That is you the know, universal sign of yeah, the hug is done. Separate. Yeah. Separate now. <laughs> Move away. Walk away now. Yeah. So I think the overlong hugs and the how are you really? You know? Yeah. How do you think I am? My mother's dead. Do you know what I mean? It's like honestly. It's really hard though. I do appreciate that it is really hard. To, to know t- what to say really I agree we we talk about that quite a lot here and the overwhelming thing that comes up is just say something say you don't yeah. know what to say but yeah. what gets me is the fucking head tilt oh oh the head <laughs> tilt no th- that's not good is it no no okay. also I, t- I don't know if you had this um either of you but but I had quite a lot of people asking me for specific things of my mother's oh no yeah and that I found difficult like you know? what like well there were <laughs> there were two rather spectacularly bad oil paintings um yeah. that she had done in she thought she I mean my mother could pretty much do anything and if she decided she was going to do take up oil painting um unfortunately they all look like um miniature stamps because she'd only do people in profile which really made me laugh um so it's kind of they sort of look like some weird german family posing for postage stamps i don't know um but but this a, a friend a friend of hers in cornwall said i quote at the funeral um you know your mother always promised me those pictures oh my gosh at the funeral yeah and i i was so um taken aback really you know just sort of really oh uh mm, let me think about that you know it was I didn't know what I felt really awkward about it you know there are ways to to bring that up yes exactly it's not the way at a funeral is it no no yeah Um, what haven't we asked you Laura that you'd like to talk about about Joan well I think that the thing the the worst thing and I bitterly, bitterly regret this, uh, but I wasn't aware of it at the time. So my mother, many, many, many years before she died, 
made me promise that I would not see her when she was dead because she had seen her mother when she was dead. And she said, I do not want the last image of me in your head as that. So promise me when I'm dead, I do not want you to come and visit. I do not want you to see me. And I don't want people gawping at me. And I want a closed coffin. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're a teenager, you were like, yeah, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah. oh, that's never going to happen, you know. Um, and of course, when she died, I didn't see her. But what I didn't realize was that in Cornwall, I think like in Wales and in Scotland still, my mum's body was taken from the hospital to the undertakers. And it was sort of held in state, if you know what I mean. And and people came to visit. People come and pay their respects. Now, I was not aware of this at all. And in fact, I didn't find out till I think a day after the funeral. And I felt that I really let her down. I I felt really awful about that because I know she would have hated it hated it but you know then I have to remember that it's just just uh just a body she's not there um but I I really really regret that but again I I genuinely didn't know yeah exactly I mean there's literally nothing you could have done no exactly I I, that's so Joan to say that actually yes yeah you know she she would would have absolutely loathed it. And in fact, when she was in hospital um, about to have this uh, surgery, um, I phoned the hospital and she had forbidden me to go to the hospital. She said, don't be so ridiculous. She said, what you going to do? Perch on the edge of the bed and make conversation. Don't be so silly. Come and see me when I'm out. We'll have a gin and tonic at six o'clock and you can tell me all the gossip from Brighton. And, you know, it was, it was that kind of thing. And I called her and, and um, spoke to her before... Uh, the night before her operation and I can remember thinking as I put the phone down thinking gosh I hope that's not the last conversation and then dismissing it from my head thinking no she'll be absolutely fine and then when I found out she had died during surgery my first thought was lucky her no pain no illness no no days of being in bed no you know because my grandmother her mother she looked after my grandmother who was bedridden for years and I think you know the thought of that for my mother she used to beg me you know if I ever end up like Grace Helen you've just got to push me over a cliff darling you know so, (laughs) um, so I do remember like the very first thought really was thank god she she if she had to die, that's a great way for her to die. Mm. Horrible for everyone else, yeah. great for her, you know? That shock, that shock must have been really oh, huge. hideous, absolutely hideous, yeah. And I was working in a bar in Brighton when I got the phone call. And I can remember just sort of looking around this bar thinking, I think I'm going to faint. Mm. You know, that feeling like your world... The, the, the floor has given way, hasn't it? Like, mm. you are falling through a dark, dark tunnel. I yeah. remember looking out the window. I wasn't there when my mum died, but looking out the window and seeing cars go past and just being so shocked that like, yeah. people were still moving yes. and weather yes. was happening. 
yeah, life was going on. How dare they? Don't they know what's happened? You know, yeah, yeah, completely. And Julie Birchall was in the bar. And she, bless her, she offered, she, she offered to hire a plane to fly me to Cornwall. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah, yeah. I, because because I, she was very fond of my mother. She, Julie had come on holiday to Cornwall, and she and my mother used to drink gin and tonic in the in the kitchen and talk about you know terrible books they'd read and it, I mean hilariously, yeah. I remember the moment that I found out that my mum was terminally ill. We, we, we thought it might be coming, but but it came and she called me because she'd been in London. And I was uh, I was working in a deli at one of the worst jobs I've ever had. I had to wear a little brown bandana. And, oh. um, I was, it was this beautiful August day, you know, like when, and it was right mm. in the beach, scorching, seagulls everywhere, that lovely sea breeze. And I stood at the back um, in this little courtyard. And I remember... You know when people just, you know, say, oh, my, it's such a cliche, you know, my legs gave way beneath me, but my legs yeah. literally gave way. Gave way, yeah. I yeah. can't stand, like I can't yeah. stand up, I've, I've got yeah. nothing. It's a, it's a punch to the, to the soul and the body, isn't it? It's, it's, you're just completely lost and mm. gone, yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting, actually, talking, talking to people who, who didn't have a great relationship with their mother, you mm. know? Um, I was talking to Joe today, a friend of ours in, in Mallorca, and I told her that I was going to be chatting to you two this evening. And she said, oh, she said, you know, when you talk about your mother, I, I'm so jealous. My mother was not, you know, we didn't have a good relationship. I didn't like her. I don't think she liked me. It was really tough. But she speak, speaks about her mother's death. Um, and said, even even she though that they didn't get on when she died, it was a terrible, terrible shock, mm. and and an awful time. And you remember it, don't you? I think we forget that like shock is a medical term, and it's like the actual sort of like chemical processes yeah. in your body when you are processing something that's like yeah such a blunt force whether it's physical or emotional and mm. I remember when my mum was dying being in physical pain because yeah just the sense of you know not to get too kind of sentimental sounding about it but like it felt like well you know that's the body that created my body and yeah. it felt like my body was in pain and empathy with the body that had created it yeah and yeah just that kind of like that sense of like a punch to the soul and the body is completely correct and mm. that idea of I just felt like like I didn't actually have a home anymore yeah like I was completely untethered now yeah and that was yeah that doesn't leave you <laughs> no it's, and also, it, the word orphan comes to mind, doesn't it? Which it always sort of sums up a sort of Victorian urchin on mm. the street, you know, barefoot and begging for soup or something. But you suddenly feel that there is no one, there is no one that can replace that feeling. No one, ever, you know? And that, coming to terms with that, is really tough. So, Laura, we are yeah. coming to the end of today's 
podcast. Um, but I would just like a little um, sprinkling of Joan to end it with, because this has been quite a heavy conversation towards the end. Yeah, yes. Well, you know, what can I say? She, she had this um, magical belief that childhood should be special. And she would, <laughs> in the summer, she would, obviously, when I was fast asleep, go around the garden and hide things in flowers. And for me to find that the fairies had, you know, were having a party in the garden. And I remember um, finding these tiny little things that she'd made out of tin foil, like a little, like a little goblet that the pharaohs would would drink from or a little silver plate with a crumb on it where they'd had a feast and um, a slipper that she'd made out of tin foil that one of them had lost in a moment of drunken champagne gaiety and <laughs> and and sort of then gone to sleep under the peonies you know and I can remember talking about this to uh, a couple of my school friends who were utterly gobsmacked because I thought every mother did this you know I thought this was completely normal and this is what mums did this is what mothers did and I realized very quickly that she was very unique and I was very very lucky and I feel without sounding I get a bit weepy when I say (laughs) that like I, I've never met Joan, obviously, but I, I love you and I love Joan through you. And it's, yeah. yeah. And I think you just, you radiate that special. Oh, well, she would have loved you and I love you. And, you know, and, and we have to remember that, that love does go on, you know, it does. It really does. And we carry our mums within us and it's tough losing one for sure, but they've never gone. Energy oh, Laura, I can't created or destroyed. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is something that Trude said to me frequently. So I'm just going <laughs> to resoundingly agree with that. And uh, Laura, thank you so much. Like, obviously, I am. It's a pleasure to meet you, but as much as we can meet each other. Yeah. And it was just an absolute joy to listen to the fabulous Joan. Well, it was lovely talking was lovely to you to- too. It really was. And Emily, I hope you can come to Spain. I do too. Yay, that would be fun. Exactly. And I won't lie on the floor. (laughs) I might after a few. Thank you for listening to the Mother of All Losses podcast. This episode was produced by Chris Thorburn. Music by Kane Aris, who can be found at Atom Collection 2 on SoundCloud, with huge thanks to Hannah Trevathan. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on themotheroflosses at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves and your grief.